So how's everyone doing? We miss you all. I can tell you miss us. Yeah, not so much. All right. So any questions about soft tissue injuries thus far? Anything that we need to address? Okay, excellent. So we're gonna continue our discussion of trauma and soft tissue injuries with the third class of soft tissue injuries, burns. Some statistics, none of which I'm going to hold you responsible for. Okay, over 10,000 people a year die from burns. And usually it's not just the burn, but really airway issues associated with the burn. One of the things that you will discover in your practice is that these are horrific injuries. Um, if you've ever had a burn patient or you ever have a burn patient, they have a very, very unique and characteristic smell. Burnt flesh is a smell that you don't quickly forget. Um, they uh, are very um, painful burn um, injuries and usually require a very, at least significant burns, require a long course of rehabilitation. Our role, especially for folks that have these significant burns, is to try to um, make sure their airway is, is stable, um, to, to um, bandage their wounds, to treat them for other trauma. And what we do for them out of hospital may decrease their long-term disability down the road. So that's really why it's important that we manage these patients. It's very easy when you're talking about burn patients to lose sight of the fact that they may have other injuries because the burns are very, very um, dramatic in many cases. And also because they can be so excruciating, they're very distracting. Don't forget to do a complete trauma assessment on any patient with burns, especially if they were involved in a structural fire. They may have um, fallen down a flight of stairs, jumped out of a window, there might have been a building collapse, and you don't want to miss other life-threatening injuries because they have this very, very painful injury that's very dramatic. And while we're going to talk about serious burns, not all burns obviously are life-threatening, although they do tend to be painful. So as we talk about burns, Burns can occur a couple of different ways. There are several different types of burns. The most common type of burn that we are likely to see are thermal burns, an eye for the obvious. Um, and that can occur a couple of different ways or several different ways. There are contact burns. These are burns when you come in contact with a hot surface. So for instance, um, a hot pot or you put your hand on the stove and it's hot. So it's not that there is a flame there, it's really just that the, the surface is more heat than your skin can tolerate, and now you experience um, a burn. You can have burns due to flame. So this would be mm, fire, bad, and you end up with a burn due to the, um, in a fire or an open flame. You can have a flash burn, and that's from usually an explosion where then there's a sudden burst of flame that then disappears and you can have a flash burn. Scald is from hot liquid. Liquid, um, the more viscous the liquid, the more heat it's likely to have. 
because it takes more heat to really make it that hot. So if you're talking about hot water versus let's say hot molasses, the molasses will likely have more heat because it's more viscous. And then things like gas and steam. Because of the change in state, gases, especially steam, have a higher heat capacity. So when you take water and you boil it and turn it into steam, that hot vapor has got a greater heat capacity than the water itself. So now, if that comes in contact with your tissue, more likely to have a serious injury, and perhaps even more insidiously, just wanted to use that in a sentence, when you inhale that hot gas or that steam, you can now get um, airway and respiratory tract burns as well. Which brings us to inhalation. Inhalation burns can occur from inhaling hot gases and steam. Um, they can occur because of toxins that occur in these, um, in these situations. So whenever we see burns to, say, the face, we always have to worry about inhalation injury as well. Yeah, Another, you have a question here. Ah, yes, Ms. Kane, how are you? I'm afraid you have to unmute yourself, Ms. Kane, otherwise I can't hear you. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Okay, so does the degree of burn depend on how how big the burn is or does it depend on like the tissue inside? Like, you know how you get a burn and it bubbles up and then the tissue inside and stuff like that? Does it depend on that or does it depend on how long the, the burn is? We're gonna talk about the factors that determine the severity of a burn in a little bit. So okay. hold on to that for a little bit, okay? Yes, sir. Cool. Good question, though. Chemical burns. Chemical burns are also a, uh, a significant issue. Um, the chemicals that most commonly cause burns are caustics. And the thing to bear in mind is these chemicals are burning because they're creating um, an exothermic reaction, a reaction that generates heat. And that burn, that burning process is going to continue until one of two things happens. One, that chemical reaction works its way to completion. Or two, you get that chemical off the patient. Obviously, the best strategy is to try to get the chemical off the patient. So when you're talking about chemical burns, the goal is to get that chemical off the patient. That has to be the first order of business. And then we can worry about the burn itself. You can also have burns caused by electrical current. Electrical burns, very often, it's not just the voltage, but the type of current. Is it alternating? Is it direct? Um, certainly high voltage will cause serious injuries, but low voltage can also cause injury. It depends upon the type of current. So we're always concerned about electrical burns because the, the burn area, the burn um, tissue, very often um, is deeper and wider than the external injury appears, the way that burn um, develops. So we'll talk a bit about those toward the end 
of our discussion. We already mentioned lightning, lightning strikes. Very often you can have things like we said, splash burns, you can have um, the, the contact burn, you can have the, the straddle burn. So lightning can cause electrical burns as well. And there's some complications that go along with electrical burns that we will discuss um, very shortly. So questions about the, uh, the last type of burn are radiation burns. And these burns can range from something as simple as, let's say, a sunburn, that's a radiation burn, or something as devastating as burns caused by radiation sickness, things caused by radioactive material. So we'll talk a little bit about that under separate cover when we talk about weapons of mass destruction and hazmat, but radiation can cause burns, and really all of these burns, regardless of their cause, are going to present in a similar fashion, and we determine their severity in the same manner. Okay. Questions about different types or causalities of burn. Excellent. So when we talk about burns, we know that obviously there's going to be this devastating soft tissue injury um, associated with it, but we can't lose sight of the fact that burns can also cause more systemic complications. For instance, when we talk about um, complications, one of the issues that arise are cardiovascular issues. We talked a little bit about, about um, shock and about hypovolemic shock. We spent a significant amount of time talking about hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock. Burns are a major cause of non-hemorrhagic hypovolemia. So you're not losing blood, but you still lose volume. And the reason for that is when you have a burn, the blood vessels in the skin are disrupted and the tissue of the skin is disrupted. And so now the blood vessels leak plasma into the space between the tissue and the cells leak fluid into the space between the tissue. And we call this process third spacing. We call it third spacing because really there are three spaces that hold volume. There's your intravascular space, the blood vessels and their contents. There's the intracellular space, the space within the cells that contains fluid or water. And then there's the third space, the space between them, the extravascular, extracellular space. That third space is of no use to us. So if we have volume from our vasculature, volume from inside our cells leaking into this interstitial space, this, intra, this intervascular space, extravascular space. It's of no use to us. So now you run into the possibility of getting shock or having shock. So we have to worry about non-hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock through third spacing. You can have respiratory complications. We mentioned inhalation injury. And when we talked about non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, 
we mentioned inhalation injury as a cause of non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. The injury, the heat, disrupts the alveolar um, space, disrupts the tissue, and now it leaks plasma. You can have tissue edema when you inhale the superheated air. It can inflame your, your oropharynx, your hypopharynx, can inflame your trachea, and all those structures will swell. And when you have these tubular structures swelling, they don't just swell outward, they swell inward. And then there are these um, respiratory injuries that are caused not just by heat and not just um, causing tissue edema, but toxins that can damage your, your airway, okay? So aerosolized things like, like aerosolized caustics can do that. So inhalation injury is a respiratory um, complication um, that concerns us. Serious burns can cause nerve damage and that the nerves that go to the dermal area, the skin are destroyed and now you lose the sensation of touch or you, you lose your ability to sense the environment because of damage to the nerves in the skin. You can have musculoskeletal injury or damage. Muscle tissue can atrophy because you can't use it because of the nerve damage. You can have joint dysfunction because of the scar tissue that forms. And now that scar tissue is retracts and you're unable to straighten out your, your joints. You can have muscle breakdown based on the mechanism. For instance, electrical burns will cause muscle damage. And much as we saw with um, crush injury, when you have muscle damage, you end up with um, leaking those very large proteins that make up your muscle into um, your vascular space. And now that can actually cause renal damage. Your kidneys can shut down because of hypovolemia. You need to have a certain blood volume to push fluid through your kidneys. And if that drops, your kidneys will shut down. Or what we call myoglobinuria, a globinuria, which is very, uh, which is part of rhabdomyolysis, which is large molecules of myoglobin in your urine clogging um, your kidneys. And so you can see that in burn injury, especially electrical injury. So these are a short list of the complications that we might expect to see in a burn patient. We're not necessarily going to see them. You might be seen in hospital, especially the, the musculoskeletal and the renal issues, but certainly the cardiovascular and respiratory issues, something we might see. Questions about complications. Okay. So Ms. Kane had asked that, you know, how do you determine the severity of a burn? In order to determine of this, how severe a burn is, we look at um, about five factors. The factor with which most people are familiar is the depth of the burn. The depth of the burn is basically um, how much tissue 
is injured? How deep does that injury go? There are a number of factors that will determine the depth of a burn. Um, obviously, the heat of the object, how much thermal energy is there, um, how long you're, um, you are exposed to that heat is going to play a role as to the depth of the burn. But really, we're not going to know the temperature of the object, the duration of exposure. What we're going to do is we're going to use the depth of the burn as our measure of how bad that burn is. The picture that you see associated with this slide would be considered a superficial burn. A superficial burn is what used to be called a first degree burn. We still use degrees to describe burns, although it is an old term. And the superficial burns only involve the top layer of your skin. So they involve the epidermis. So really what we're talking about, and much as you see before you here, is a first degree burn. Now this first degree burn is a sunburn. And sunburn is a radiation burn. So you can see this is an example of a radiation burn that has caused a superficial or first degree burn, okay? When you have these first degree burns, as anyone who's had a sunburn will attest, you get this reddening of the skin perhaps, this, this aggravation of the skin, and it's fairly painful. So that tissue, those nerve endings that are underneath the epidermal layer in the dermal layer are, are being irritated and it hurts. Now, these burns do not cause blisters, but because of the damage, the outer layer may peel off. So when you have peeling due to a sunburn, that's what we would expect to see with a superficial burn. We don't consider those to be blisters. We just consider that to be a bad choice of sunscreen, okay? Questions about first degree burns or superficial burns. The next step in severity, as far as depth goes, are what we call partial thickness burns. Partial thickness burns are second degree burns, and they involve the epidermis and at least part of the dermis. You may remember that the dermis is the business layer of the skin. It's the part of the skin that's got blood vessels and nerve endings in it. And when you damage that part of your skin, now you run into some of the complications we talked about. We differentiate partial thickness burns into two subcategories. There's your superficial partial thickness burn and your deep partial thickness burn. Both of these burns have blisters, okay? The superficial burn, the superficial partial thickness burn, has got thin-walled blisters, okay? And the skin will look red and irritated, okay? Needless to say, these are painful. The skin will look like it's weeping. If you touch it, it will blanch, it will 
turn pale and then pink up a bit. So that's a superficial partial thickness burn. Your deep partial thickness burn has got thicker wall blisters. It may be red or it may look waxy white. Okay, So the characteristics of these are, are slightly different. Okay, When you have partial thickness burns, because the damage to the skin, you will have third spacing to some extent. So the skin tissue is going to weep contents and the vessels are going to weep contents and that makes you form the blister. We don't want to break blisters, although at times blisters will break on their own. And if that's the case, then it happens, so happens, so be it. Another characteristic of this is these are very painful. Remember, we said that the nerve endings are in the dermal layer. So these will be very painful. And if you take a look at this, you can see where you've got some superficial second degree here and some of the deeper second degree right in here. Okay. So obviously- Do you see that question there, Captain, about the third space meaning again? Okay. So there are two questions there. Why or how does the bubbling happen? And can you go over third the third spacing meaning again? And these questions, both these questions are linked. You have three spaces in your tissue. The space within the blood vessel, the intravascular space. That's where you want fluid. You've got the space within the cell, intracellular space. That's where you want fluid. And then you have the third space, the space between the tissue cells. We call that the interstitial space. We do not want fluid in the interstitial space. It does us no good. If you damage your blood vessels with a burn, they will leak. If you damage your skin cells with a burn, they will leak. And they leak into this third space, this interstitial space. And that's how you get your, your blisters. Okay? Does that answer those two questions for you? Can I get some sort of acknowledgement from those two individuals? You are or getting not. a thumbs up from Mr. Miller and uh, looks like Mr. Lou gave you a thumbs up as well. Okay, because I can't see everybody in my mosaic. Excellent. So if you can have partial thickness burns, it stands to reason you're going to have full thickness burns. Full thickness burns are called third degree burns. These burns go through the epidermal layer and the dermal layer. So you have destruction of the dermis, okay? This burnt tissue is called eschar and it has a leathery texture to it. Just think in terms of this tissue that has absorbed so much heat 
that it no longer has fluid in it. So now it becomes leather-like and stiff, okay? And if you take a look at this gentleman who's has some significant burns, you can notice that you have this charring, right? So the charring indicates eschar, right? And if you notice, it looks kind of very, very waxy white. That is also an indication of eschar. And as we ask the musical question, how deep does the eschar go? Okay, it goes deep enough to destroy your nerve endings. So usually with these burns, the third degree area is painless. However, rarely do you have burns that just have this single zone of third degree burn. Usually there's areas of second and first degree burns associated with it. And those are going to be extremely painful. The problem with third degree burns, as you see here, when you have large surface areas of third degree burn, the tissue underneath is going to do third spacing. You're going to have third spacing. And that tissue is going to want to expand. It's going to want to swell up but the eschar tissue has lost all of its elasticity. So now the pressure in that tissue is going to increase and can cause more damage. Also, if you have circumferential burns to the chest, what's going to happen to your ability to take a deep breath? It's gonna be very difficult for you to do that. So what they may do, or what they will do, is a procedure called an escarotomy. An escarotomy is when they take a, a scalpel and they make an incision in the tissue to allow the tissue to expand. If you have a burn to the torso, they may either cut the tissue so that it creates almost like a clamshell, you'll have an upper and a lower or an anterior and a posterior portion. So now when you breathe, they will separate or they can score it on the diagonal so that when you breathe, it can separate. So the eschar tissue, while painless, creates problems because you've lost the elasticity of your skin and now you're going to have a tougher time taking a breath you're going to have a tough time because the pressure inside the limb because of third spacing will increase when you talk about patients like this they're going to want to get rid of all this dead tissue and what they will do is they will actually take little micro knives, micro scalpels, or something that looks very close to like a cheese grater, and they will start grating this tissue off. And they'll know they've gotten all of the dead burnt tissue off when the underlying tissue is exposed and it begins to bleed. 
and then they'll start worrying about grafting. Okay. Questions about full thickness or third degree burns. You can also have fourth degree burns. Those burns involve the subcutaneous tissue, muscle tissue. And in fact, you can almost go as deep as burns of the bone, fifth degree burns. Once we get to third degree burns, we stop really differentiating, okay? So fifth degree burns go down into your, into the bone, okay? So questions about burn severity from the perspective of depth of the burn. Nope, okay. So that's one factor that we look at to determine burn severity. Another factor that we look at to determine burn severity is the extent of the burn in terms of body surface area. The more body surface area that's burned, the more severe the burn. There are several different mechanisms or tools that we use to determine body surface area. One tool that we use is called the rule of nines. The rule of nines involves dividing the body up into areas that are multiples of nine. For the adult, when we talk about the rule of nines, the entire head, the whole head, front and back, is 9%. When you talk about the torso, the entire anterior torso is 18%. If you were to flip that patient around, their, interior, their entire posterior torso would also be another 18%. So the entire torso is 36%. So 18% anterior, 18% posterior. Entire torso. You could divide that up if you wanted into chest and abdomen, in which case it's roughly nine and 9% 9 each. Both arms, each arm in its entirety is 9%. So my right arm is 9%, my left arm is 9%, the entire arm. The entire leg from the groin down to the toes is 18%. So between both legs, you've got 36%, okay? So if you do your math, multiples of nine, your head, anterior torso, posterior torso, each arm, both legs, comes to 99%. We save the very important 1% for the naughty bits. So the genitalia is roughly 1%. for most of us anyway. Children are different. 
very young children anatomically are different. We said that they have bigger heads. So what we do is we take that into account. So for a young child, and by that we mean under the age of five, the head is not 9%, it's 18%, large surface area. Well, if I'm adding 9% to the head of this child, I have to take 9% from somewhere. And what we do is we take 4.5% from each leg. So the head, because they've got short, stubby little legs, so their head becomes 18%. So that's a change. Their anterior torso remains 18. Their posterior torso remains 18. Each arm is nine, nine for the left, nine for the right. But each leg loses four and a half percent. So now each leg is 13.5%. Eighteen minus four and a half is thirteen point five. I know no one ever said there'd be decimals. Very confusing. So these are just guesstimates that we use. Okay. Now, you should know the rule of nines because the rule of nines is the most common tool we use to determine body surface area. Okay. Questions about that? Okay. So, questions? We're good? Okay. There aren't many questions, Captain. I think they just are, are trying to figure out the math a little bit. Does everybody, everybody get the... You just do a quick rundown one more time, Cap. For the adult, the entire head, 9%. The anterior torso, the front of the entire torso, 18%, two times nine, 18. The posterior torso, 18%, two times nine. Each arm in its entirety, 9%. Each leg in its entirety, 18%. And then the most important 1%. Okay. For the child under the age of five, all the numbers remain the same, except we're stealing 4.5% from the right leg, 4.5% from the left leg, and giving it to his head for a total of 18%. Okay, why did it add up to 99%? Because this is in increments of nine, right? One nine plus two nines is three nines, plus another two nines for the back, five nines, each leg is two nines, seven, nine nines, ten nines. 
11 nines. 11 times nine is 99. And then the 1%. Okay? I think they feel good about it, Captain. So I just want to make sure everybody understands right. that if the whole head is 9%, if you just like catch your hair on fire, that's only 4.5%. You understand how these would break down, right? Okay. All right, they're good to go, Cap. Mr. Gellan was nice enough to do the math for us. Thank you, Mr. Gellan. Now, obviously, there's going to be some difference based on age. As you get older, your proportionalities change, and it gets really complicated. There's actually a chart called the Brund, the Lund-Browder chart. No one memorizes it, but it is a resource that breaks down body surface area, head, torso, and extremities across the pediatric age group. It starts at infancy and goes up to adolescence. It's a tool that no one ever uses. They use it in the hospital because it becomes more important to have an exact body surface area count than it does than it does in out of hospital settings. And now there's also something called the rule of palms. The rule of palms works on the premise that your body surface area of your palm is 1% of your body surface area. So if you make a fist like this, curl your fingers, that surface area of your palm and your fingers is 1%. So that works well for really, you know, smallish type burns. For large burns, we use the rule of nines. Now, if the palm of your hand is 1% and your naughty bits are 1%, is that a coincidence? I don't think so. I'm just saying. Ah, Mr. Gellon likes that. All right. So questions about body surface area. So Ms. Kane, does that help you at all? A thumbs up works, a thumbs down works. She said yes and gave you a thumbs up. Well, the alternate finger works too, whatever makes you happy. Okay. So that's, those are two things that factor into the extent of burns. There are three other factors we look at. One factor is critical areas, burns involving critical areas. So regardless of the body surface area issue, there are certain areas that are considered to be of vital importance because of life threat or lifestyle. Face is considered a critical area. Okay, so even though my face is only four and a half percent, it's critical because it is cosmetically um, important. 
right? It's, it's a lifestyle issue. In addition, if you have burns to the face, you have to worry about burns to the airway. So that is a critical area. Burns to the hands. If you have third degree burns to the hands, you could lose functionality in your hands. So that's going to impact your ability to make a living. It's a lifestyle changer. Same thing with burns to the feet. If you have third degree catastrophic burns to your feet, you may have difficulty walking. So now that becomes a lifestyle issue, a disability issue. Burns to your gonads, certainly a lifestyle issue. Burns that are circumferential, especially to joints, because if you have a circumferential burn to a joint and you have a lot of scar tissue, you may lose the ability to have full range of motion in that joint. Okay, questions about critical areas. Okay, the fourth factor we look at, pre-existing medical problems or other trauma. So for instance, if you have a history of cardiac disease, your ability to compensate for your burn injury is reduced. It makes it more severe. If you have um, associated trauma, you jumped out of a burning building and fractured your pelvis, that trauma coupled with the burn is going to make each of those injuries more difficult to compensate for. So pre-existing medical problems, associated trauma other than the burn is going to make this a more severe issue. And then there's age. The textbook mentions younger than the age of two and 50. Other textbooks use five and 55. The, pr the principle remains the same. Young children, because they have a greater body surface area, are more likely to lose heat and become hypothermic due to damage to their skin. And hypothermia is one of the factors that will injure or, or make this injury worse. Hypothermia will kill your, your, your trauma patient. If you're over the age of 55, as you get older, your ability to compensate for these catastrophic injuries decreases. So when you talk about five to 55, that, that, that age group tends to be better able to compensate for these types of injuries. Outside that age group, more complications, more issues. Questions about the five factors that play a role in burn severity. Body surface area, depth of the burn, critical area involvement, age, 
other comorbidities or associated trauma. There you go. Questions about that? We're good? We okay. do have a question here, Captain. First of all, can you repeat yes. those, Re those okay. five factors? Body surface area, depth of the burn, critical areas, age, pre-existing medical problems or other associated trauma. And then you have another question here, Ms. Kane. Gonads is private parts, right? Yes. Okay, and then what is decreased resiliencies again? Decreased resiliency. Resiliency is your ability to bounce back. The older you are, the less able you are to compensate for this for injury. You have less resiliency, less likely to survive. Okay. The, okay. Are you okay, Ms. Kane? Yes. Can you just put a heart near the gonads? And that was it, Captain. You can go ahead. All righty. When we talk about burns, there are some considerations that we want to bear in mind. The most important consideration, the most important issue is inhalation injury. Inhalation injury is critical, okay? How do you know someone might have an inhalation injury? Well, during your assessment, you wanna to listen to breath sounds. Do you hear bronchoconstriction due to a narrowing of their bronchioles? Do you hear strider because of a narrowing of their airway up here in their upper airway? Do you hear rawls because the alveoli have been damaged and they're leaking fluid? So we're going to listen to breath sounds. Look in the patient's airway. Is there soot in their nostrils, soot in their mouth? Okay, do they have singed facial hair? These are all indications that they may have inhaled smoke or may have in, in, inhaled superheated air. In many cases, it is the inhalation injury, the asphyxiation, that kills the burn patient, not the burn. So inhalation injury is a vital concern. In addition, we know that our skin is responsible for thermoregulation. If you lose the ability to vasoconstrict because of damage to your skin, you are at a high risk of hypothermia. And now if you're hypothermic, your clotting mechanisms don't work as well. You may begin to shiver and now you're creating lactic acid. So hypothermia is a risk, a consideration, a complication of burns. These two are complications or considerations we can attempt to manage. We can give high flow oxygen. We can keep the patient warm.
Okay. From there, third spacing. Serious burns, those, those second and third degree burns will cause a fluid shift. And when you end up with that fluid shift, you end up with swelling and loss of blood volume, loss of vascular volume. So now hypovolemia becomes a problem. We usually don't worry about hypovolemia in the field because our ETAs to hospitals are so short and we're more concerned about the inhalation injury and the hypothermia, okay? Questions about that? The other issue that we're worried about is infection. Many patients who sustain significant burns, if they die in the hospital, it's because of infection. So if we can get them to the hospital, then they're not, then they may survive this, but they are more likely to die of infectious processes. So while we will cover them with a sterile dressing, if we can, a sterile burn sheet, the issues revolving around infections are usually dealt with in the hospital once they get there, okay? So for our priorities in order, inhalation injury, hypothermia, and then maybe hypovolemia if we have ALS and infection in the hospital, okay? Questions about the burns so far? We're good? So these are thermal burns that we were talking about especially, but these principles can apply to other burns as well. We talked about chemical burns. Chemical burns are usually caused by caustics, strong acids or alkalis. It'll cause burns to the skin. And if that's the case, if someone ends up having battery acid splashed in their face, the fact that it's a chemical burn impacts how we're going to try to treat it, but in determining the severity, we use the same factors we just discussed. Bear in mind when you're talking about chemical burns, your eyes are particularly vulnerable. So again, we wanna be aware of that. And as you can see here, we have someone who's got a burn to the eye that could be, um, is critical because they might lose sight, okay? When you're talking about burns to the eye, and we'll talk more about this when we talk about eye injuries, you wanna irrigate the eye for at least 20 minutes. Tap water is fine, usually we prefer saline, but if this happens at home, flush with tap water is fine. We mentioned when we talk about, when we talked about poisonings and absorption that we treat chemical exposure like a hazardous materials event. It's important to get timely removal of the chemical and that requires decontamination. So the decontamination process starts with disrobing. And I mean your patient, not you. 
if you can get the clothing off of the patient, you're going to pretty much eliminate about 80% of the contaminants. If the contaminant is a solid, we want to dust the dry chemical off as best we can. We want to get as much of the excess off. And that's because when we add water, if you don't get that excess off the patient, all you're going to do is create a strong solution. We want as weak a solution in contact with the patient as possible. So we're going to dust as much of the contaminant, the dry contaminant off as we can. And then we're going to dilute with copious amounts of water for 20 minutes. Copious is just a fancy way of saying a lot. Don't go looking on your ambulance shelves for water labeled copious. It's not like Evian water, okay? It just isn't. It's not like Perrier. It just means a lot. And you can see here, this illustration, they've thrown this guy into a commercial shower and they're just pouring lots and lots of water. And that's the best way of dealing for it with a chemical burn. There's a question there that makes mention of PPE for gases and dusty chemicals. So you do get goggles. Remember we talked about goggles as far as eye protection goes. PPE for gases, well, AV2000, N95. So you wanna use the appropriate PPE. If you're talking about a poisonous gas, you shouldn't be in there in the first place. Okay, your safety first. You don't have an SCBA. If you're talking about poisonous gases in the environment, you should not be going into that environment. If the firefighters have pulled that patient out, getting the clothes off the patient will prevent off-gassing. Okay, any question, other questions about chemical burns? So again, if this patient has got burns on their arm, chemical burns on their arm, 9%. We use the same gauge. If there are blisters, it's a partial thickness burn. It doesn't matter what caused it, but that's how the burn presents, so that's how we characterize it. We mentioned electrical burns. Look at this cute little kid sticking a paper clip into a wall outlet. Shrewd move. So now the electrical current enters the arm. It's going to travel through the arm and it's going to seek the ground. And now that's the path the current is going to take. Okay. So safety first. So electrical burns can happen from higher low voltage energy. It's not so much the voltage as much as it is the current, the amperage. So be wary. The body is mostly water. Water is a great conductor of electricity. So the electricity is going to pass through your body to ground. Always be cognizant of your safety. If this kid has a wire on this kid, 
this kid may be and may be live with electrical with electrical current. So you want to make sure that you either turn off the power or if there are live power lines, get the power lines off of the patient. If you don't have the equipment to do it, fire department will. Okay? Do not become a victim yourself. Electrical burns frequently present with an entry and exit wound. The entry wound is usually fairly small and the exit wound tends to be fairly dramatic. And the reason for that is, I'm going to go back to the previous slide for a moment. When the electrical current makes contact with the skin, it creates the small um, wound, but because our tissue is made out of water, you get this cone of destruction. It widens out exponentially. And so now when it exits, it blows out that entire area, okay? So when we talk about electrical burns, you're likely to have an entry and an exit wound. Electrical burns can have some pretty significant complications. You can have renal failure because of the destruction of that muscle tissue. You can have neurodeficits, loss of hearing, loss of, um, of tactile sensation. Um, you can have cardiac dysrhythmias, this sort of event can put you into V-fib, cardiac arrest. So you want to be aware of that. So whenever we've had someone who has been electrocuted, we want to be ready for um, CPR. These patients do respond to AED, right? So just because the electricity caused my cardiac arrest doesn't mean the electricity in our AED can't fix it, okay? So this is a medical arrest. Questions about electrical burns. Okay. We mentioned inhalation injury. You can get inhalation injury um, because of the heat of whatever you've inhaled. So if for instance, you're um, in a, uh, um, you've inhaled steam due to a, a steam, um, pipe has burst, then that, uh, that heat is going to get absorbed by your airway and it's going to cause swelling and damage to the tissue. Captain, Smoke, you. You, you did have a question in the last group there. I, I don't know if you see the hand up. Ms. Okafor, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to ignore you. Oh, no, that's okay. I just more so had a question in regards to the um, electrical burn slide when you were showing the layers of the skin um so is that going through the epidermis dermis like all those layers i didn't really understand the picture yeah it's going through all the tissue it's going through your if you if your hand touches it for instance and mm -hmm. your foot is the ground it's going to take that path and destroy all that muscle tissue it can actually blow out your bone Mm, okay. So all of the way. Okay. So that's okay. 
Perfect. Thank you. Products of combustion are hazardous. Smoke contains particulates, um, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, um, cyanide, phosgene. So not only does the smoke have these particulates, the soot that's gonna clog your airways, that's gonna irritate your airways and cause bronchoconstriction, but it also has these poisonous gases that can act as simple asphyxiants, replacing oxygen, and chemical asphyxiants, preventing you from being able to use your oxygen, and irritants, irritants that are gonna damage your tissue. So the treatment for anything where we're worried about gas inhalation or inhalation injury is have that patient removed from the area of exposure to a ventilated area. You may not have the PPE appropriate to do that. If this is a fire building, you do not have an SCBA. Firefighters will do that. High flow O2 is the way to go with these patients, okay? So if you're suspecting inhalation injury, then you have to worry about um, high flow, you're giving high flow O2. So how do we treat burns? Well, obviously this patient's going to be oozing um, body fluids, so BSI. Safety first. It's not your job to go into a hazardous situation to remove the patient. Have the firefighters or the people who are trained to, um, to, to rescue these patients access the patient and transfer care to you. That's the best way to assure your safety. You have to stop the burning process. If the patient has just come out of a burning building and they're still smoldering, the way you stop the burning process is immerse them in water, hose them down, throw water on them. So your mom was right, Put your hand under the water if you burned yourself, definitely. You wanna stop the burning process and water will do that. When you put burning tissue into water, oxygen can't get to the tissue, it stops burning. But remember, one of our chief concerns is hypothermia. So once you have stopped the burning process, you have to dry the patient. You cannot leave them wet have to stop the burning process, but then you have to dry them. Do your assessment. Do your trauma assessment. Is there any other trauma that I have to worry about? High flow O2 as is appropriate. Do your burn assessment. Watch the body surface area. Watch the depth of the injury. And then we use dry, sterile dressings for burns. We do not use moist dressings. Dry, sterile dressings. So if it's a small wound, someone was uh, cleaning up at a work site and they, and they ended up burning their arm, then dry, sterile dressings. If you're talking about a large surface area, like a body, 
then a sterile burn sheet is ideal. If you don't have a sterile burn sheet, then just a dry, clean sheet works fine. Remember, third spacing will cause swelling. So we want to remove any jewelry from the affected part. So if the patient's hand went into a friolator, got to get that jewelry off. Otherwise, the tissue will swell around it. So we've hosed them down to stop the burning process. We've done our assessment, dry sterile dressings, prevent hypothermia by putting something on them that will keep them warm. So another sheet, a clean blanket, we wanna prevent hypothermia. In the event of a serious burn, especially one that might involve the airway, think in terms of ALS that airway can swell very quickly. I had a patient who was very early in my career who was the victim of a burn. She apparently was having an affair with her neighbor's husband. And while she was sleeping, her neighbor um, doused her with gasoline and set her on fire. And when we got there, she was ambulatory. She had third degree burns over almost her entire body, but she was striderous. And we got her down to the truck and we knew that she was not going to survive. So start ALS, her airway was, was, was awful. And indeed, she ended up succumbing to her injuries. I love a happy ending. And choose your point of entry. There are only two hospitals in the city that have a burn unit. The Mass General has a dedicated burn unit, and the Brigham and Women's has a dedicated burn unit. All of the other trauma centers will accept burn patients, but if this patient needs a long admission, they're gonna get transferred to one of those two hospitals or to Shriners Hospital. Shriners Hospital is a referral hospital. It is not a point of entry, okay? So if I had a serious burn on Mass Ave here and I was worried about their airway, I'm going to go to the Boston Medical Center. They don't have a dedicated burn unit, but they're a level one trauma center. Have them manage the airway and then they can ship them off to the Shriners or to another hospital. Questions about burns? All right. This would be an excellent spot for our first poll question, Captain. Ooh, my favorite time of day. Um, all right, so just a reminder for those of you who may have missed it, but when we originally started on, um, at the end of class, if you'd like to stay, Captain will go over the answers to the extra credit for uh, quiz seven. Um, he will go over quiz seven Tuesday before class around 1840 or 6:40 for those of you who don't do 24 hour clocks. And now the poll question. Oh, and the last thing is, is if you're eligible for the makeup test, it will be Saturday the 25th at 10 a.m.
It's a 25 multiple guess questions with um, 40 minutes for you to complete it. I have a question.
Okay, Captain, I've uh, ended that poll. You do have a question here. Uh, okay, um, the injuries is up. Okay. Um, are you ready? For me? No. Captain, I need you to unmute. I am ready. All right, now go ahead, Barbara. Okay. My only question was, um, are the recordings no longer going to be posted anymore? I've spoken to our tech guy, and he is supposed to be on it. Uh, okay. We'll see what happens. But um, okay. we are a little bit, just a tad bit busy right now. Okay, that's fine. Thank you. <laughs> Captain Brooks said that he was going to edit them and, and put them up there. So yes, you should have them. Okay. All Any right, Captain. Was there another question? Okay, so the results are in and 64% there felt like a crush injury could cause renal failure. And then the other large winner was all of the above. So the correct answer is renal failure. Crush injury can cause renal failure because the muscle breaks down and is released, releasing proteins that clog your kidneys. Crushing mechanism frequently can cause hypovolemia. Just the act of rescuing the patient can cause them to bleed out. So remember we talked a bit about being careful about um, panicking and extricating the patient too quickly. And crush injury can cause ketoacidosis. Ketoacidosis is something that diabetics get. Crush injury can cause lactic acidosis. Not the same thing. Lactic acidosis is the result of anaerobic metabolism because of the crush injury not allowing oxygen to the tissue. Ketoacidosis is because cells are shifting to a different fuel source while using oxygen. So 64% of you, nicely done. The rest of you, not so much. <laughs> All right. How's everyone doing? We good? Excellent. So now we're going to talk a little bit about musculoskeletal injuries. And we're going to start with a quick discussion of what does the skeletal system do for you? What's its job? What's its job? We talked about how the skeletal system early on does five things for you. Five, five, five. Probably be a good extra credit question at some point. First thing it does for you is it gives you structure. It, it gives you your shape. Otherwise, you would just be blobs of soft tissue that we'd have to roll around. It also offers protection. Think in terms of your rib cage protecting your lungs and your heart. Think of your squash, your, your skull, your cranium protecting your brain. So it offers protective characteristics to critical items um, of our body. It also allows us to move. Our bones, along with our muscles, act as a system of levers that allow us to walk, to pick things up, to, to talk. So all of these movements that we make 
that involve bony structures, um, involve muscle tissue that allows us to move those bones in opposition to each other. And the third thing that um, it allows us to do, I mean, the, the fourth thing it allows us to do is it has a, it acts as a reservoir for minerals, especially calcium and phosphorus. We mentioned that calcium is found in your blood circulating around, and that helps you with muscle contraction and electrical impulse conduction. So that's an important part of it. But it also acts as a reservoir for phosphorus, which helps us um, with our energy maintenance, produces, helps us with ATP. So it's a reservoir for minerals. And finally, hemopoiesis, which you may remember is the production of red blood cells. It is the bone marrow, the spongy marrow in our long bones that produces red blood cells. Red blood cells do not have a nucleus. They cannot reproduce or produce more themselves. So it is the stem cells in our bone marrow that produces our red blood cells. So these are the five functions of our skeletal system. Questions about that at all? All right. So let's do a quick review of the skeletal system. It's not nearly as much fun without the interaction of you people. But let's think in terms of the bones of the cranium. This, of course, is the frontal, parietal. This is not nearly as much fun as in person. Temporal, Captain, do you want me to unmute them all so they can all say it with you? No, that just becomes annoying. That's all right. I'll just go through it real quick. Um, yeah, the, cerv the uh, spine, the spine's got um, seven cervical vertebrae, 12 thoracic, five lumbar, five sacral, and your coccyx. And then you've got ribs. How many ribs do you have? 12 sets of ribs, your sternum, manubrium, sternum, and xiphoid. Yeah, I'm just not gonna do that anymore. Not as much fun. I'm giving up. So let's talk about soft tissue. When we talk about our soft tissue, we're talking about voluntary muscle. Voluntary muscle is also known as striated muscle because when you look at it under the electron microscope, it's got these striations, these protein bridges that allow it to contract. So voluntary muscle is striated muscle. Fascia, if you remember, fascia is the connective tissue that covers our muscle fibers and organizes it into discrete groups that can contract as a unit. So the fascia, extends on pretty much the whole length of the muscle group. It's kind of a, a sausage casing made out of um, connective membrane. You have tendons. Tendons connect muscle to bone, okay? Tendons are muscle to bone. So if you have this muscle mass surrounded by fascia, it all gathers at both ends into tendons. 
When you're talking about your long bones, your extremities, the proximal point of attachment for your muscle group, or for the tendon, is called the point of origin. So for instance, my bicep attaches to my shoulder up here. That's the point of origin. There's a tendon there. And then I, my bicep muscle runs the length of my arm and my tendon, my biceps tendon attaches to my forearm right around here. And that's the point of insertion. The distal point of attachment is the point of insertion. Okay. So tendons attach muscle to bone and the proximal point of attachment of an extremity is the point of origin. The distal point of attachment is the point of insertion. And cover what the fascia is again. Fascia is the connective tissue that covers muscle fibers into discrete groups, into muscle bundles, if you will, into muscle groups. So for instance, if you take a look at chicken, you'll notice that the muscle, the meat, is kind of surrounded by, by, by a membrane, by fascia. That's what fascia is. And that fascia creates a fascial compartment. It contains all the muscle fibers that belong to that muscle group. We have a neurovascular bundle. The neurovascular bundle, the neurovascular bundle um, contains arteries going into the muscle tissue, veins leaving the muscle tissue, and nerves that, con that um, control the muscle tissue. So the neurovascular bundle runs through the muscle tissue and then blood vessels branch out of it. So the question for Mr. Gelwan is, are those compartments? They're not compartments in the sense of your abdominal cavity and your chest cavity, but they form basically, they compartmentalize your muscles, okay? Does that help Mr. Gelwan? Okay, we'll talk about compartment syndrome later. So questions about the soft tissue injury, soft tissue involved so far? Okay. So let's talk about joints. Yes, I know it's legal in the state. So when you're talking about joints, joints are where two or more bones articulate. And that's just a fancy way of saying meat. They talk to each other perfectly. So your joints involve two or more bones that meet and mesh together in a way that is optimal for their motion. Now, certainly different joints have different ranges of motion, depending upon what they're designed to do. My shoulder is designed to swing, so it's going to have range of motion in all planes. Whereas the joint in my finger is only designed to move in one plane. So the range of motion varies based on the structure of the joint and the structure of the joint is based on its function. What is it supposed to do? 
Joints are surrounded by a fibrous capsule called a joint capsule. And the joint capsule contains all the components of the joint in one place. So it pretty much just surrounds it and acts as a protective covering. Now in this illustration that I gave you here, the illustration is that of a knee joint. So the joint capsule contains all the components, all the bony components of that knee joint, okay? So it contains the distal femur and the proximal tibia. And that's where you're going to find all of the soft tissue involved in a joint. Joints involve ligaments for the most part, especially movable joints. Movable joints need ligaments. Ligaments attach bone to bone. Tendons are muscle to bone. Ligaments are bone to bone. In addition, we have specialized tissue in our joints that do a couple of things. For instance, we have what are called articular cartilage. Articular cartilage is the cartilage that covers the articular surfaces of the bone. So this is cartilage that is put in place to prevent friction. We don't want bone rubbing against bone. It's going, it would cause a degeneration of the bone. So we have articular cartilage, kind of like this Teflon coating that allows the bone to move against itself without friction. We also have what are called meniscus or menisci. The meniscus is cartilaginous tissue that's embedded in the joint capsule that cushions impact. So there are two types of cartilage in a joint, especially a joint like your knee joint, your elbow joint, joints that have a lot of mobility. There's the articular cartilage that prevents friction and the meniscus that acts as a cushion. Also, in that joint capsule is specialized tissue to help prevent friction called synovium. The synovium is specialized tissue that produces fluid, cleverly called synovial fluid. And the synovial fluid fills the joint space. And this adds um, lubricant, it has a lubricating um, quality to it, and also cushion. If you have an irritation of the joint, your synovium will produce more fluid and your joint will swell. For instance, the term water on the knee. That's an increase in the production of synovial fluid in order to reduce friction. The problem is when your knee swells, you reduce the range of motion. And so now you have to have that fluid removed. Okay. So questions about joints. See that one about the tearing of the meniscus? 
Yes, you can, can you can tear your meniscus, you can tear your articular cartilage as well. So depending upon where that tear is, you may need surgical intervention. Sometimes it'll heal on its own. Um, you may always have a little bit of a tear. So it depends. So for instance, if you're talking about um, your articular surfaces, you might have a tear in the middle of your surface that creates a flap and that might cause your joint to lock. So if you do have a tear in your meniscus or in your articular cartilage, then they might need to shave it, sew it up to reduce the um, tear or the flap, or they might have to remove the meniscus or the cartilage entirely. Okay. Questions about that? All right. There are many types of joints. For instance, you have a ball and socket joint. An example of that would be your shoulder or your hip. These are joints that are designed to have range of motion in multiple planes. So you're able to move around in circles, in an arc. And that's basically because of what those joints do, right? They, they are responsible for swinging and for moving. So you have a ball and socket joint. Another example or a special type of ball and socket joint is something called a condyloid joint. This is a ball and socket joint that limits the range of motion from just all directions to several. For instance, the way your wrist is constructed, it's a ball and socket joint to a certain extent, but you have mostly range of motion going in two directions, up and down and in and out. The rest of the range of motion is the result of gliding joints embedded in your hand. The, hand, the, um, the, the bones of your hand, the carpals, act as ball bearings and they glide around each other. And that's really what gives you more range of motion than the condyloid joint does in and of itself. Hinge joints are joints that move in only one plane. For instance, your finger moves only in one plane. Your elbow moves only in one plane. Your knee moves only in one plane. So hinged joints. Pivot joints are joints that rotate. For instance, your C1 and your skull, they pivot on each other, right? So you get to rotate. You also have saddle joints. These are joints that pretty much straddle, um, where bones straddle another bone. And an example of that would be your ankle. So your ankle, the tibia and the fibula straddle your foot, and that's a saddle joint. And that allows range of motion pretty much back and forth. But then the bones of your foot, your tarsals, allow you to rotate, allow you to have circular range of motion. 
You can have a symphysis. A symphysis is a joint where two bones meet. There is cartilage there. You do have ligaments. But the ligaments are very, very tight, and they are designed as a structural component, not a movable component. So for instance, in your, in your pelvis, the two pubic bones, as you see here, actually have a cartilage and ligaments that attach the two pelvic bones together. There's very little motion there, very, very tight. But during pregnancy, hormones make those ligaments kind of lack, lack, slack rather. And now the pelvis can expand in order to accommodate that bowling ball that is junior. Okay. Another place where you have minimal motion is in your AC joint, the joint between your chromion, right? and your clavicle. You don't want motion there. You want structure here between your clavicle and your manubrium. You don't want movement. You want structure. So what we do is we tighten those ligaments, make them really short so there's not a whole lot of movement. And then you can have joints that are fused. These are joints that pretty much fused together. There's no ligaments attached. There are no, there's no cartilage and it's fused into a so, one solid bony case. We see that with the cranium, the skull. We see it with the pubic bones here, okay? The ilium and the ischium and the pubic bone have all fused. We see it with the sacrum. So there are lots of examples where bones have fused to create a protective structural component, okay? Questions about the different types of joints that we have, okay? Based on how the joint is designed, based on its functionality, joints will have range of motion just to quickly Remember the ranges of motion. Flexion is bending toward the body. For instance, flexing your elbow. Extension is straightening away from the body. And the way we do that, we generally have two muscle groups that function in opposition to each other. My biceps muscle will um, contract, flexing my arm in. My triceps muscle will contract, extending my arm out. So those two muscle groups act in opposition to each other. We have adduction and abduction. Adduction is toward midline. So when you bring your extended, your arm to your torso, that's adduction toward the midline. When you extend your arm outward, when you push your arm outward, that's abduction away from midline. And I think we also are all familiar with those abduction and adduction machines that work your hips. Very unflattering. Rotation is the movement along the axis of a bone. 
So for instance, when you turn your palm up and down, you're rotating your arm along its long axis. As opposed to circumduction, where you're rotating through an arc, like your shoulder goes through an arc. Okay. So those are some ranges of motion with which we should be familiar. familiar. Questions about ranges of motion? Okay. So let's talk about mechanism of injury. Mechanism can help us anticipate the type of injury we're going to see. Obviously, if a force is applied to a bone, we wanna consider the direct force to the point of impact. If I'm using my arm to protect myself as a defensive move, there's gonna be a direct impact that's going to damage that bone. That's direct impact. Indirect impact is the transmission of that force along the bone to another structure. For instance, if I fall on my outstretched hand and injure my shoulder, the point of impact is my hand, my forearm, but that gets transmitted into my shoulder. I think we're already familiar, we've already met our angry driver and his dis disgruntled passenger. The point of impact of the direct force would be the kneecap, might be a knee injury, but the indirect force might injure the pelvis or the femoral head. That would be the indirect force. You can also have a twisting or torquing force that's when a bone end is held stationary while the rest of the body or the rest of the bone rotates or torques. And that can create some fairly devastating injury because you usually end up with this spiral-like motion. So these are the mechanisms of injury that we're likely to encounter. The twisting motion very often other than causing injury to the bone itself, is more likely to cause injury to a joint because of the, that's a weak point in the structure of the, of the extremity. So in talking about musculoskeletal injuries, there are a variety of types. We have fractures. Fractures are a disruption in the continuity of the bone and it does not have to be dramatic. You can have anything from a very, very subtle hairline fracture or a stress fracture to a dramatic angulated fracture or a blowout fracture. So any disruption, any interruption in the continuity of the bone is a fracture. Dislocation, a dislocation is when you have a displacement of the bone ends of a joint. So if this joint is supposed to fit like this, if I shift those bone ends, those articular surfaces away from each other, that's now a dislocation. Dislocations frequently result in disruptions of the joint capsule, okay? You can have 
a, spr a sprain. A sprain happens to a joint capsule, okay? So usually you'll have a range of motion that causes a disruption in the joint capsule, and now you have all this soft tissue injury. All those components that were in that joint, the, um, the ligaments, the, the, the cartilage can be damaged. The difference between a sprain and a dislocation is that in a sprain, the articular surfaces remain where they're supposed to be. In a dislocation, they're shifted. A strain is a muscle injury or a tendon injury. A strain is when you exert a muscle to the point where it is stretched or tearing, or you have a stretching or tearing of the tendon, okay? So fractures are bones, dislocations and sprains are joints, strains are muscle, okay? You strain your hamstring, you sprain your knee. Questions about those types of musculoskeletal injuries? Nope, okay. When we talk about fractures, fractures can be described using two different qualities. If you have a closed fracture, you've got this interruption in the integrity of the bone, but the skin and the soft tissue surrounding the bone are intact. That's a closed fracture. An open fracture is when the skin over the fracture point or site has been compromised, it's torn. This can be because of the bone ends of the fracture protruding out as we see here, okay, an open fracture. Or it might be because, for instance, of a bullet or projectile has damaged the soft tissue and has impacted the bone. That's still an open fracture. When we talk about open and closed fractures, okay, the other terms that have been used in the past, an open fracture used to be known as a compound fracture. It's a fracture that is compounded by the injury, by the soft tissue injury, or a simple fracture. A simple fracture means it's a closed fracture. If you have an open fracture, we never intentionally replace the protruding bones into the tissue. Now, while you're treating it, it might go in, but that's not the point. We want to keep this fracture immobilized without forcing those bone ends in. Once those bone ends are protruding, they are contaminated. There's bacteria on there. There's stuff on there. And now if it goes back into the, into the limb, now you're gonna end up with a bone infection. And bone infections are very difficult to treat, okay? 
So we have open and closed fractures. You also can look at a fracture by how angulated it is. An angulated fracture is also known as a displaced fracture. You can have non-displaced fractures, a hairline fracture, a stress fracture, okay? There is no, well, let, me, let me phrase this carefully. There is no foolproof way to determine a bone is fractured without an x-ray. Now, certainly, this is obvious. This picture here is obvious. There's no doubt this is fractured. But if you had a closed hairline fracture, a closed, non-displaced fracture, you might not know it unless you got an x-ray. Okay. So you can have open displaced fractures like this. You can have open non-displaced fractures. For instance, a gunshot wound. You could have an open, non-displaced fracture, right? You can have a displaced closed fracture, something that's extremely angulated, but the bone ends aren't popping out, okay? So again, these are two aspects of a fracture that we can use to describe it. Questions about open versus closed, displaced versus non-displaced? Nope, okay. So let's talk about types of fractures. You can have a transverse fracture. This is a fracture that goes across the axis of the bone. So it's perpendicular to the axis of the bone. So this is a through and through fracture cutting across the axis of the bone. Very often, if you have a fracture like this, the bone ends will be pulled into each other by the muscles that surround that bone. So these, my, my muscles, your muscles that are surrounding the bone, the long bone, are constantly trying to contract because that's what they do. And if you fracture that bone, those bone ends go into each other. That's called an impacted fracture. We see this especially in femur fractures because the muscles of the thigh are amongst the strongest muscles in your body. So your femur, the strongest bone in your body is providing counter tension to the muscles. And if you fracture your femur, those bone ends go into each other. An oblique fracture is the same as a transverse fracture, except it's at an angle. It's at a jaunty little angle. So if my bone is cut straight across in a plane perpendicular to the bone, that's a transverse fracture. If it's at an angle, it's an oblique fracture. The problem with an oblique fracture is when those muscles contract, those bone ends slide past each other. And now very frequently you can end up with 
bone coming out. Okay. I see your question, Mr. Tejeda. Yes, you can have a closed displaced fracture, most certainly. Okay. Those two qualities are independent of each other. A common nudic fracture is a fracture that occurs and causes the bone to break into more than two pieces. Okay, so it's more of a shattering effect. It could be two main pieces and a bone chip. Technically, that's comminuted. If you have more than two pieces to the bone, to the fracture, it's a comminuted fracture. A spiral fracture is when you add torque. So the bone actually splinters a bit because of the torque. So questions about those characteristics of a fracture. Transverse, impacted, oblique, comminuted, and spiral. Okay. From there, we have some specialized fractures. For instance, green stick fractures. Green stick fractures occur in children. They get their name from, well, now that we're here in spring, new growth um, of foliage. So for instance, a tree. A tree has a brand new branch. The branch is very flexible. You can bend it without it breaking, just like the pediatric bone. The pediatric bone is more flexible. It doesn't break as much. But once you take that new branch and bend it too far, it will snap, but not entirely through. Same thing with the immature pediatric bone. If you bend it too far, it will break, but it won't break clean through. And that's called a green stick fracture. Because when you look at new growth and a branch and you break it, you see the green immature growth in the stick. You don't have that in the bone, but it's similar in nature to it. So this is a pediatric fracture due to Im flexible, immature bones. An epiphyseal fracture is a fracture of the epiphysis, and the epiphysis is the growth plate. Bones grow not from the center. Long bones don't grow from the center but from specialized growth areas on either end. So they grow from the end out and elongate. Those growth plates, because they're growing, make a weak, form a weak point in the bone. So very often in children, they will have an, epiphy an epiphyseal fracture. So that's either a proximal or distal fracture. The problem is if it doesn't heal properly, that bone will not grow at the same rate as the bone on the other side. So now they may need to do some special procedures to enhance and make sure that the bones grow at the same rate. There's a special type of fracture called a Collie's fracture. It's also known as a silver fork fracture, and that is a fracture of the wrist. And it has a very characteristic um, presentation 
in that you get this hump in the distal forearm that makes the entire arm look like a fork. The forearm is the handle, the fracture site is the hump in the fork, and the hand and the fingers form the tines or the teeth of the fork. So this is very common in the elderly because when they fall, they fall on their wrist and it causes that kind of fracture. A pathological fracture is a fracture due to underlying disease. For instance, osteoporosis. Mrs. Old is 80 years of age, gets out of her bed, plants her foot, and suddenly her femur breaks. That's a pathological fracture. Bone cancer patients may have pathological fractures, okay? And then there are some fractures that are considered critical. Pelvic fractures can be life-threatening because of the blood loss. That's a beautiful puppy, because Ms. LaPierre, because of the blood loss involved in the pelvic fracture. Femur fractures. You can lose a liter to a liter and a half of blood into a closed femur. So that makes that a critical type of fracture, especially if you have bilateral femur fractures, okay? So questions about the different types of fracture. So this next slide is not in your packet. There is a, a one question there, Captain, the spiral fractures. Spiral fractures. Spiral fractures are not necessarily critical, okay? When we're talking critical fractures, we're talking about fractures that are life-threatening due to blood loss. A spiral fracture of my tibia is not a critical fracture. It's not going to cause um, death. Okay, uh, Captain. It, it, it's spinal. I'm, it was a misread, spinal. Spinal fractures. A spinal fracture isn't considered critical unless you're in neurogenic shock. Okay. So, and I would not necessarily know you have a spinal fracture unless you're in neurogenic shock. It's the neurogenic shock that makes it critical, not the spinal fracture. So if you take a look at this picture, these, these x-rays, First of all, in the top left, you'll see that this is an, a radiograph of a forearm, okay? And you can see that you have the radius, which is the bone that's running uh, along the superior aspect of the, of the radiograph, and the ulna, which is the inferior aspect right here. The ulna, you'll notice, has got this displaced fracture site, mid-ulna, and you can see that the bone ends are not exactly in alignment, so that makes it a displaced fracture. And you can see that it's at an angle, which makes it an oblique fracture, okay? Now this radial fracture here is a little also at an angle, right? 
and is slightly displaced, though not as displaced as the ulna. Okay. The radiograph below that, you can see that you have the head, uh, the distal end rather, of the femur and the proximal end of the tibia. And here is where the patella should be. And you can see that the patella has been broken into at least one, two, three, at least four pieces. That makes this a comminuted fracture. Okay. On the right-hand side, as you're looking at the slide, this is an ankle. Just to give you some idea, the larger bone coming down is the tibia. The smaller bone to the left of it is the fibula. Okay. And then the bone at the base here, this is the, the talus, the part of the foot. Now, as you're looking at this, the tibia runs on the lateral aspect of the leg. And you'll notice that there's a bone fragment that has been sheared off right here. That bone fragment remains attached to the ligament right at the foot. The fibula has been fractured right here, you can see that it's displaced, and this would be a transverse fracture. So this is a fracture of the tibia, a transverse fracture. This is also an avulsed fracture of the, fib of the tibia here, and this is a displaced dislocation. You can see that the joint, the, whole, the, the articular surfaces have been shifted. So this is a dislocation as well. So you can have fractures associated with dislocations, okay? So this would require some surgical intervention, especially here for this avulsed portion of the tibia, right? Questions about these fractures? Isn't that cool? Thank you, Ms. LaPierre, I appreciate it. So we talked a bit about fractures. Let's talk about dislocations. Dislocations result from the joint exceeding the normal range of motion. ROM is range of motion. And you end up with a displacement of the articular surfaces of the joint. So right here, this is the proximal ulna. And it's been pushed past the distal humerus. So this is a dislocation of the elbow. This portion of the ulna that you see right here is called the olecranon. The olecranon is the part of the ulna that forms the elbow joint, okay? The thing about dislocations is it also disrupts the entire joint capsule. So you're gonna have some stretching of ligaments, you're going to have some tearing, perhaps, of ligaments and of the joint capsule. Okay. Questions about dislocations. Okay. Sprains are also a type of joint injury. The mechanism and the presentation of a sprain 
is the same as a dislocation. You cannot tell the difference between a dislocation and a sprain without an x-ray. That whole, you're walking on it so it's not dislocated, you're, you're moving it so it's not broken, is a fallacy. You can have a serious sprain and have it look like it's dislocated because of all the swelling, and you can have, or you can have a minor dislocation and not be aware of it because there's not that much displacement. The only way you can tell the difference is by an x-ray, just like with fractures. So we are not going to walk people with joint injuries because we don't know which one it is. With a sprain, the articular surfaces of the bones remain in place. You don't have that shifting, that dramatic shift. Usually, the joint itself will have um, will be unstable. Um, if anyone's ever had any knee injuries, the way they check on whether or not you have a knee sprain is they actually lay you on your back, they, they have you bend your knee and your hip and put your foot on the, on the examining table and they sit on your foot and they grab your distal tib fib and they yank it back and forth, back and forth and around. And if there's instability, you've got a bad sprain. This is essentially a ligamentous injury. The ligaments holding those bones that are involved in the joint together have either been stretched or torn. Usually you have point tenderness where the ligament runs, swelling, and if you remember, ecchymosis is bruising. And here you can see some swelling, some edema, and some bruising, some ecchymosis due to this ankle sprain, okay? So we're assessing orthopedic injuries. You want to expose and compare both extremities, if you're having an extremity injury, because you wanna check for symmetry. For the most part, the right and left limbs should look similar, okay? So we're looking for symmetry. If one or the, if one extremity is showing you edema, swelling, bruising, ecchymosis, or deformity, then you're no, you know that something is amiss. For instance, here we can see that this right lateral malleolus is significantly swollen. And it looks like a deformity. This could be a severe sprain or it could be a dislocation. No way to know unless we do an x-ray, okay? Same thing goes for fractures. When you talk about fractures, we're going to look at both sides for symmetry, edema, bruising, and deformity. We're gonna palpate the extremity. We're looking for point tenderness. Ow, it hurts. Crepitus, if you remember, crepitus is bone ends moving against each other. 
false movement is when a bone bends where it's not supposed to. So if my forearm is bending here, that's false movement. Patients with orthopedic injuries will guard. They won't want to move the injury site and their range of motion will be diminished. It's important if you ask someone to move their extremity to, you know, when we check range of motion and distally, that if that we tell the difference between I don't want to move it because it hurts and I can't move it because of nerve damage. Those are two different things. I can't move it because I can't indicates neurovascular injury. I won't move it because it hurts too much indicates prudent thinking on the patient's part. There's a difference between the two. So in addition to signs and symptoms of the extremity, we want to do a neurovascular assessment. <laughs> Are we okay? Yeah, you're good, Captain. Go ahead. So we want to assess for CSM, circulation, sensation, and motor function. So circulation, perfusion, distal pulses are preferred. So radial pulse in the upper extremity, pedal pulses in the lower extremity. Because pedal pulses are so hard to find, once you find it, mark it. This pulse here is the posterior tibial. There's another pulse up here on the top of the foot. That would be your dorsalis pedis. So we want to assess our distal pulses. Cap refill, if you cannot assess a pulse or can't find it, okay. But really, it is distal pulses we're looking for. We're going to assess sensation. Can you feel my touch? I don't like that so much because it's a yes, no question. I prefer along the lines of which finger am I touching? Which toe am I touching? What side of, my, of your hand am I touching? The nerves in your extremities branch out. One set innervate the medial aspect and one set innervate the lateral aspect, both the hand and the foot. So we want to make sure that all those nerves are intact. So here we're, what toe, what side of the foot, what toe am I touching, what finger am I touching? Movement. Can you wiggle your toes? Can you wiggle your fingers? Make a fist. Step on the gas. Pull back against my hand. These are all things that we're going to assess to make sure that the motor nerves are intact, okay? So questions about neurovascular assessment. One of the complications of orthopedic injuries with which we are concerned is compartment syndrome. Compartment syndrome can happen with fractures of the extremities, or with crush injuries, either one. 
doesn't have to be a crushing mechanism. Remember, we said that your muscles are held together in compartments by fascia. What was that when you go back? Yeah, okay. When I'm done, I'll go back to the dislocation slide, Ms. Smith. So what happens is injury due to the fracture or the crush mechanism will cause the tissue, the muscle tissue to swell. And as it swells, the fascia is going to try to stretch. Fascia is made out of connective tissue. It is not very elastic. So eventually all that muscle tissue is going to continue swelling while the fascia stops stretching. And that's going to increase the pressure in the fascial compartment because of the edema and the hemorrhage. The problem is now you're going to damage the neurovascular bundle. When you damage the neurovascular bundle, you end up with signs and symptoms we call the five Ps. P for pain, pain out of proportion to the injury. This is pain where you look at the injury and it doesn't look awful, but the, pain, the patient says it's 10 out of 10 and they're in excruciating pain. So the pain is much greater than the injury would indicate. They also may characterize this, this, this pain as this excruciating pressure inside their leg or inside their arm. Because the neurovascular bundle is being compressed, blood flow distal to the injury is reduced. So the skin will appear pale. When you check for distal pulses, pulses distal to the injury, it will be pulseless. Because of the compression of the nerves, they will have loss of sensation. They will say it feels like pins and needles. And they may have loss of movement. They won't be able to wiggle their toes. So these five things, pain, pallor, pulselessness, paresthesia, paresthesia and paralysis, indicate compartment syndrome. And unless you check CSM, you're not going to notice it. Okay. Questions about paresthesia, the five Ps. Okay. Emergency care. There is that question, Captain. What was paresthesia? Paresthesia is loss of sensation, decreased sensation. Okay. So we talk about orthopedic injuries. What do we do for them? First of all, don't lose sight that most long bone fractures are non-life-threatening. Don't be distracted by a dramatic tib-fib fracture or a dramatic upper extremity fracture. Not life-threatening. Get your trauma assessment done, if appropriate. Before we treat the orthopedic injury, you want to cover open wounds. Yes, even those associated with the orthopedic injury. If I have an open femur fracture, you want to cover it with a dry sterile dressing. 
from there, the treatment is very similar to closed soft tissue injury. Ice. Ice will cause vasoconstriction and reduce the swelling. Compression. Compression will reduce the edema and help reduce some of the tissue injury. Elevation of the fracture site above the level of the heart will reduce swelling. So for the arm, it's easy. For the leg, you may need to lay the patient flat and elevate their leg. And splinting as appropriate. Remember, we talked about splinting with regard to trauma assessment. If it's a load and go, we will splint in the truck on the way to the hospital. We can use the longboard as a body splint. But if you're talking about an isolated injury and it's a stay in play, we prefer to splint before we move the patient. There are some general rules of splinting. CSM before you apply the splint and CSM after splint. When you immobilize a limb, you want to immobilize the injury site and the part of the limb distal and proximal. So if I'm immobilizing my forearm, I'm going to immobilize my forearm, that's the injury site, and my elbow and my wrist, because those are the parts on either side. So we're always immobilizing the injury site and the part proximal and distal. If it's my elbow that's injured, I'm going to immobilize my elbow, my forearm, and my humerus. For long bone fractures, if you have a severely angulated long bone fracture or a limb that is pulseless and cyanotic, then you need to consider realigning that limb. So pulling gently along the axis of the bone to pull it into anatomic alignment and then splint it. If you're talking joints, we always splint joints in the position we find them. We never manipulate a joint, okay? So CSM before and after, as we said. Any questions about fractures? All right, Captain, this is a good place for us to throw our second polling question up. Boom. All right, we'll give that about another couple of moments. How are we doing for responses there, Captain? Um, we're about 
almost everybody's checked in. Missing one or two, but that's uh, standard. And yeah, I think we're gonna, that's about where we're gonna end, right there. All right. So how did we do? So as you can uh, see here, about 57% felt like all of the above. So for those 57% of you that said all of the above, well done. Burns can cause non-hemorrhagic hypovolemia through third spacing. Burns can cause pulmonary edema when there's an inhalation component. Burns can cause renal failure if you damage enough soft tissue and muscle and cause muscle destruction, especially with electrical burns. So strong work, good job. If you wanna take down your share screen there, Cap. Okay, and uh, now we'll open the floor to any questions before we do anything else. Questions, questions, questions. Uh, yes, we do. Here we go. Go ahead, Mr. Norman. So I was just like wondering in regards to like, this is more of a question in regards to like what's to come next. Um, and I was wondering like what we're going to be doing about like the ambulance rides. So, well, like I thought we had like talked about this like last time. Did we? I don't think we talked about it a lot. I think we talked. Yes, we did. We covered it a lot. But I'm happy to go over it again. Okay. Yeah, I probably just forgot. So we are going to continue to stay the course with didactic material. There's nothing we can do about practical remotely. Okay. And I don't think any of us want to put things on hiatus only to pick up whenever social distancing is um, relaxed and then have the EMT course go over the summer. I'm pretty sure that none of us want to spend our entire summer with each other. Just a stretch. Okay. So, so we're going to continue with Tuesday and Thursday. Okay. We're going to do lectures. We have enough content to get us through several weeks. Once we're able to reconvene, we will reconvene along the normal class schedule doing practical. And the ambulance rides will be at the end of the course. There's no way in the world we're putting you on an ambulance right now. It's not safe for you. It's not safe for our EMTs, it's not safe for the patients. No way in the world at all would we expose you to this. So no matter what waiver we gave you, it wouldn't cover what you could have potential risk of. So There's we'll no way. let you know when it's safe to get in an ambulance again. What if it's not safe by May? Like that's what I'm still trying to figure out. If it's not safe by May, then we'll when it is it safe, June. we'll let you know. We'll do it in June. And if it's not safe in June, we'll put it on pause and we'll do it in July. So we will put you in an ambulance when daddy says so. I'm daddy. Okay. Okay, daddy. Thank you. Who's your daddy? Oh. You're, you're my daddy. Okay, no, stop now. Stop. 
No. Okay, so we have several questions in the chat thing. Um, the first of all is uh, this, it looks like somebody answered the synthesis. Um, you just, what is synthesis again? Uh, a, a synthesis is when you have a concert with a very large group of multiple types of instruments. No, a synthesis is a bone, is a joint between two bones that's got a cartilage and ligaments, but there's very little motion. So it's a, it's a minimal movement type of joint. There you have one in your pubis, you have a couple, you have one up here between your clavicles and your sternum. There's one right here between your sternum and your xiphoid, between your acromion and your clavicles. So we got the whole world is a symphysis. And then you have another question here, Captain. Go ahead, Ms. Kane. Um, on Saturday, well, one of these Saturdays, are you able to like just do like I know practicals we have to work with each other, but are you able to like use a pillow or something and just like go over like the assessments and stuff like that really quick or no? Or no. do you just no? Okay. All right. Because we could demonstrate it all we want, but then when we are done touching my pillow, then there really isn't a whole lot that we're going to be able to do with that. It's going to be way more effective when we finally meet to do it in person. But you can practice. You have the sheets. They're available to you. You have pillows and wee ones, so please feel free to touch them all you want. In a good way. Um, and then Mr. Tejada, I see you have a question. What are we covering Tuesday and Thursday? You mean Tuesday and Thursday of next week? Are you asking because the syllabus has changed? Because basically what you should do is just ignore any practical and just go on to the next lecture that is there on the syllabus. Does that make sense? Awesome, great. Uh, are there any other questions before I allow him to uh, go over the extra credit questions that you guys already did? I'm just going to for a second, Captain. I'm going to run into your office and get that exam. Oh, I, okay, I can just read them to you. Get to me. Whatever you, whatever you want. That's fine. All right, so the first question, Captain, is what were the four functions of the liver? So the liver has many functions. We can start with, it detoxifies your blood. It acts as a storage for glucose via glycogen and fat. It produces aminoglobulins. It produces plasma proteins. It produces bile, okay? It produces clotting factors. So it does tons of stuff. Question number two. Describe five indications that a patient is potentially violent. I don't know what you mean. So vocal activity, um, pacing, posture, body language, a history of poor impulse control, substance abuse, alcohol, 
psychiatric disorder. So there's a number of things that we would accept, okay? We were very forgiving with that one. Captain? Differentiate between the uh, peritoneal and colicky abdominal pain. Peritoneal pain is caused by an inflammation of the peritoneum, peritonitis. It presents with a rigid belly, it's constant, tends to be well localized, and there is a position of comfort. Colicky pain is caused by the obstruction of a hollow organ. It's characterized as being wave-like, intermittent, crampy, and there is no position of comfort. Next. And the last one is, what are the seven signs or, of organophosphate poisoning? So as long as you remembered one of the acronyms, you could get most of them, right? Sludgem is the most common acronym. So salivation, lacrimation, urination, defecation, gastric upset, emesis, meiosis, right? Dumbbells is another one. Defecation, urination, meiosis, add bradycardia and bronchoconstriction, emesis, lacrimation, salivation, and then to all of that you could add vasodilation. There, that question right there, Captain, says, did you want them exactly in the medical terms? Or if I use layman terms, would you accept those answers? I will, we will accept the answers as you wrote them, as long as it's reasonable. So if you put down P, then we'll take P for urination, although that's not in any of those acronyms, but anyway. What else? Those are the four extra credit questions, Captain. Are there any other questions for the Captain? Nope. Nope. Right, so just to reiterate, remember the makeup for test two is Saturday at 10 a.m. Saturday the 25th, two the 25th. five. Not this Saturday. The 25th. Saturday the 25th. No class this Saturday. All right. <laughs> whoop, whoop. All right, folks. Any other questions? Quiz eight, Captain. Let me think on quiz eight. Okay. Oh, wait. You do have a question here, Cap. Yes. Go ahead. Um, quiz eight, will it still be on that Saturday too? No. Okay. Okay. So will class still be, well, class on that Saturday will probably be at 11 to however long? So I need to re rework the syllabus. I'm waiting to see how some things fall. So we may have an abbreviated class on Saturday. So okay. it'll be a full class just because this way 
we can keep up with the with the um, with the lectures, but also it'll give us an opportunity to to check in with each other and, and to spend some quality time on the weekend. And and who knows, maybe if I'm feeling particularly, I don't know, generous, we can go over test one. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> okay, any other questions? As far as putting stuff in medical terms, can we try to use medical terms, please? I think we're kind of like at a point in the class where I would hope we'd be able to come up with the medical term for, I don't know, pee and poop. I'm just saying. All right, folks, listen, be safe. Maintain your distance. We're thinking of all of you. <laughs>